we're so it's so much easier to see other people's goodness and forgive other people generally and go i'll have compassion for them but it's not as likely that we do that for ourselves so that's the same with me it was very it was very unnatural for me to be compassionate and graceful to myself it was over a span of many years and having really good therapists and teachers point to the innate goodness in me and go underneath behaviors or underneath thinking patterns we are all radiant and whole beings. Hello and welcome to the Wordful Woman podcast. I'm Christina, your host, and my guests are people who operate at the intersection of science and spirituality. It is my great pleasure today to speak with Dr. Michael Sapiro. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here, Mike. Dear listeners, Dr. Michael Sapiro is a clinical psychologist, psychedelic assisted therapist, transformational coach, writer, meditation teacher and researcher, and former Buddhist monk. He is trained by the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, also known as MAPS, is on faculty at SLN Institute, a fellow at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and core faculty in the Psychedelics Today Vital Psychedelic Certification Program. He recently completed a study on time travel, hope, and love with Dr. Julia Mossbridge of the Institute for Love and Time, also known as TILT. Dr. Sapiro teaches nationally on the art and science of transformation, expanded human capabilities, and future making. He is the integrative psychologist at the Boise Ketamine Clinic, where he offers both individual and group ketamine-assisted psychotherapy sessions, and is an integrative coach with Vets and Sabbath Foundation, helping former Navy SEALs and other special operations team members recover from combat exposure with psychedelic-assisted therapy. Mike's work is dedicated to personal awakening for the sake of collective and planetary transformation, which is also his personal motto. And with that, Mike, I'd love to ask you to kick us off by telling us a little bit about what this motto of personal awakening for the sake of collective transformation means to you and how you came to chose it as the motto for your work. Sure. <clears throat> I'm interested in both the individual and, <clears throat> excuse me, and the systems we live in and the world we live in. And so I worked on a more systemic level, working with institutions and organizations, trying to make change so that uh, we have, let's say, better policies. Even I've worked with polit politicians trying to help create better laws that are um, more conducive to well-being and health of our communities and society and in the planet, too, because once the planet goes where we have nowhere to be. So but I also realized that those organizations are made up of individuals who are we're generally wounded a, a lot of us come with to our work to our communities with untended and unhealed wounds and those are actually what um, prompt us to make decisions and the way we think and the way we act in the world is based on our unique makeup and the way our untended wounds kind of manifest so i have to do both things at the same time to make a difference I have to help the individual awaken to their potential and also heal their wounds, their psychic wounds, the psyche wounds, psychological wounds. And then we also have to make a difference in the society itself and make small shifts in the culture so that people are taken care of and the planet is taken care of. So it's kind of a both and thing. And so my motto is personal awakening for the sake of global transformation 
because uh, we can't have that global transformation if we as individuals aren't doing our work um, as well. And I, uh, and I imagine that in, in doing so, it also brings this challenge of you tending to your own well-being because your job is quite demanding on that, I would, would, I would mm -hmm. guess. Uh, so yeah. how do you make sure you also tackle that part? Because you talked about individual transformation from the other perspective, but not mm -hmm. from your personal one. Oh, yeah. Well, most of my day is set up actually for my own well-being and not, not in a selfish way, but, you know, how am I supposed to serve my community and whether it's local in my town or national in the States or global where I also work a, with a far reach if I'm not tending to myself? And so all, almost all of the work that I do comes out of my own personal practice. The way I know how to heal people is because I have a lot of wounds myself, psychological, emotional wounds, that if I don't tend to, I'm going to act out of, which has been the case in my life like it has with everybody. The mistakes I've made and the hurt I've caused myself and others come from really being unconscious and not aware of those things. So. My day is set up in the first couple hours of my day. I have meditation practice, I have exercise, um, and then I do reading, I have contemplative prayer, and that's all before I even start seeing patients, clients, or going to my meetings. And I also have my own therapist, I have two spiritual teachers, and a mentor that I regularly um, get counsel from because I can't do this alone either. So everything I teach actually comes out of a personal practice that I have. That's awesome. And you talk about this time when you were unconscious about your own personal wounding. Uh, when and how did that change? When did you become conscious of it? Or if you will, when did your personal awakening or series of awakenings happen? It's never ending. The human being is a never-ending process of unfolding. All of us, everyone listening, is never going to be fully awakened or fully enlightened. Even those world-renowned teachers that I meet with and have worked with, they are still in the process of unfolding. None of us are a finished product. And I don't know what happens after we die. So I don't know if after we die, if the consciousness of us has to do more work or if we're freed from our kind of personal limitations. But from a very young age, I recognized the wounding of my family and how that was being imparted onto myself and my sibling, my sister. And uh, I also recognized where I'm making mistakes, where, where I'm not in alignment with like my own heart. So it's just been an unfolding process since probably my teenage years when I was really coming uh, aware of myself. And um, so throughout my life, I have helped a lot of people, but I've also hurt some too. So I have to be aware of the, those kind of dynamics as they're playing out. And I'm aware of other people when they bring me some feedback, my job is to really listen and take that in. Uh, and so, I mean, throughout my life, I've just been more aware of, of this feedback and then incorporate it within myself as then I also serve and help. Mm -hmm. Um, in in your experience, because you talk about this idea that 
you you have helped a lot of people and you have also hurt people, which is a very human thing. We have all hurt people. Mm -hmm. In your experience, what is a good way of going about making peace with the fact that we're probably never going to stop hurting people really and that this process is ever unfolding? Like, how how do we accept that, but not to the point where we kind of give up <laughs> on ourselves and actually right. the person. Or, or we shame ourselves or we yeah. punish ourselves. All of us contain everything all the time. All of us have the potential of hurting and healing, helping, being unskillful. The first thing I do is, is try to have grace with myself because I grew up in a model where if you do things that are wrong, you're going to have love withdrawn from you. And so, you know, my dad actually would would punish me if I did something wrong, I would be made to feel shame. Mm -hmm. And then he would withdraw himself from me, which is terrible to a child, right? Or an adolescent who's needing love and support to have a parent figure kind of pull away. So I was taught if I make mistakes, it's my fault and I'm bad. And I've carried that with me a long time. And I help people recognize the kind of patterns in their lives. It's the same thing. What I'm talking about is probably the same thing in many of the listeners right now, recognizing, yeah, there was a way someone treated me that taught me something about myself that is actually not true. And so we have to realize uh, a lot of the a lot of how we grew up in the models uh, that we incorporate within ourselves are actually other peoples mm. that have been laid upon us that now we have to undo. And that also includes when we make mistakes, were we punished, were we shamed, were we embarrassed, or were we encouraged and supported and given grace and patience. Mm. And so the way we were treated actually gives us a model for how we treat ourselves. So we all have to awaken to that first, like, why do I treat myself this particular way? That's not actually natural, but it is conditioned. So when we make mistakes, which everybody will be doing in their lives, none of us are, uh, will get away from that. We do need to have some grace, patience, support, encouragement for ourselves to be like, of course, you're going to make mistakes. Of course, you're going to hurt people in some way. Now there's different levels of hurt, right? So we don't want to like, just we want to be careful about the kind of hurt we're doing to people but we just need to first have grace and understanding with ourselves of course we're fallible and culpable to making mistakes and we want to do it in a way that is actually supportive of our own growth without being punishing without being um, shaming because that is such a toxic way of of handling mistakes is being shaming or punishing um, that doesn't actually make changes. It just makes us feel small. And then we act out of that uh, in ways that are not actually healthy. Yes, and I, I love that you bring up the, um, the concept of shame because and in, in tandem with the idea of not just individual change, but also systemic, systematic change, because we do live in a world where I personally feel we're heavily conditioned to say, well, you know, if I do shame myself, you know, I motivate myself to get, you know, to become better and so forth. So there is this ingrained message so we can do our personal work, but that pressure is still there. And, you know, mm -hmm. there's certain systems that do reward that, that do reward self-punishment, you know, working ourselves to the point of exhaustion, you know, like things like that, that, you know, are not healthy for the mind or nor the body. Mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned this concept of grace and introducing this idea of grace. So this is on the individual um, level, how to kind of start to break out of that. How did grace first start to manifest in your life? When would you say were the first inklings of that? 
I, th I, I don't think it was natural to me. It's not the way I grew up mm. for the most part, giving myself grace for mistakes. And what, what I did was tend to punish myself internally because I had lost the respect or, uh, or the love of someone I really was looking to be loved by. Mm. And then it's like, oh, it must be my fault. A lot of kids do that, you know, mm. even if the kid, like parents divorce, they're like, I did it. It's something I did. And we grow up kind of doing that as adults. So grace was not natural to me. Mm. I think it came after lots of deep um, meditation practice and seeing my innate goodness, which is really hard for us to see. We're mm. so, it's so much easier to see other people's goodness and forgive other people generally and go, I'll have compassion for them, but it's not as likely that we do that for ourselves. So that's the same with me. It was very, it was very unnatural for me to be compassionate and graceful to myself. It was over a span of many years and having really good therapists and teachers point to the innate goodness in me and go underneath behaviors or underneath thinking patterns. We are all radiant and whole beings. Um, and my job is to help others get there, but mm. it was so hard to do that for me, of course. But so now I'm trying to turn my loving awareness and compassion toward myself. So over the years, I've learned ways of talking to what we call the inner critic, you know, that voice in you that puts you down, that overly criticizes, that's really self-deflating. Mm -hmm. I have learned a way of talking to that part of me and teaching that part of me how to talk to me. Mm. And so I did that through countless meditation retreats, internal dialogue with that part going, I hear what you're saying, mm. and I want to hear what you're saying, but I can't hear it the way you're saying it which by the way, translates to when other people talk poorly to me, I go, I wanna hear what you have to say, but I'm not willing to hear it in that way. Because I now I have better boundaries with others to be like, don't talk to me like that way. Basically, mm -hmm. if you have something to say, find a way that's kind so I could hear it. So I've taught myself how to do that in my own mind going, don't talk to me that way. That's not helpful. Like. And that part of you really wants to be heard. It's just not skillful. It doesn't know how to tell you important things without beating you up. And so I've learned over the years how to train it to actually be my ally. So it tells me things that are important without hurting me. And that's that's graceful. That's I've taught myself to be graceful. I love how you point out that having better boundaries with yourself at the end of the day or your ego, your mm -hmm. side of yourself helped you to have better boundaries with other people. I really have to sit with that. You know, it, it, it feels very true. And coming back to this concept of getting to one's truth, but in a way that, you know, it's not, you know, traumatic or overly harsh. Like one of the ways that you serve people to to achieve to come back to the truth to their wholeness is uh through offering uh ketamine assisted psychotherapy and i think our listeners would love to hear a little bit more about that uh first of all i'm not sure uh all listeners will be familiar with what ketamine is or what effects it has on the body maybe you can start us off from there and then walk us through how a ketamine assisted psychotherapy session actually looks like from the perspective of the patient yeah. So, you know, as a psychedelic assisted therapist, I use a variety of different medicines depending on where I am in the world, where it's legal. In the States, ketamine is a legal medicine. So I can, I don't administer it. The nurses I work with do. I sit with the patients as they're under the influence of ketamine and then we do therapy. It was, it's, a, it's an anesthetic drug that was created in the laboratory to make an easier, uh, 
have an easier impact on the body when people were going into surgery or, or needing anesthetic medicine. Um, and it was discovered that these, this particular compound uh, doesn't stay in the body that long. It actually has regenerative, regenerative properties in the brain, meaning even within one day, they're, they're recognizing there are, uh, there are changes in the brain that happen. Um, and I don't, I don't know enough of the science to go into the actual uh, description of how that happens. Um, but it is one of the medicines that has a pretty quick impact on the brain. My interest is the, the, the psyche and the psychology of a person. So what happens when you're on ketamine, if you're on a high dose, you, you go to sleep. It's amnestic. You don't remember the experience. And that's when they use, you know, surgeries or when they're setting um, a broken bone, let's say in a child in an emergency room, they'll use ketamine because it's safe on our system mm -hmm. and it doesn't have a long lasting impact. Uh, but the lower doses, you start having a psychedelic experience. Mm -hmm. You have what we call an altered state of consciousness or non-ordinary state of consciousness where um, you see and experience more about yourself than you'd normally do in your waking consciousness state, which is generally pretty limited, what we call the default mode network, which is just how we think and operate in a regular way. But that default mode network that we're talking about that we normally operate is conditioned and habitual habituated by patterns that were created from our family and our culture and that's the those patterns are generally wounding to us so when you're in a ketamine infused state of mind your regular ego kind of dissolves it comes and goes and so it no longer has those defenses the way we normally protect ourselves mm. and so that way you're able to access other parts of your consciousness that are usually suppressed or repressed or hidden. And that's where our truth usually lies mm -hmm. in the heart itself, which we, how many of us slow down to listen to what our heart has to say? Well, in a state of a psychedelic state, especially ketamine, where the nervous system is relaxing, you have access to other parts of yourself that you normally wouldn't. And that's when the patient and me explore those parts of themselves and they start speaking their truth like, hey, it wasn't OK that I was treated this way. Mm -hmm. An example is some patients come in and say, oh, my parents were great. They know they didn't do anything wrong. I'm like, oh, OK, sure, sure. And then on ketamine, they're like, I hated the way my dad treated me. It wasn't even if it wasn't abuse, even if it wasn't maybe it was just neglect, which we don't think of as abuse, but neglect is actually harmful. Maybe it was that the parents were, and it's not our parents fault everything we're going through, but when we're growing up in a, in a culture or in a household that doesn't hear or see us or give us the space to be ourselves, that actually hurts us. And so maybe under ketamine, someone recognizes that and they go, I was ignored. I wasn't, I wasn't encouraged to be who I was. And now I want to be who I'm supposed to be. So ketamine gives us the space to speak those things, to tend to ourselves because we're no longer defending. I'll just stop there. That was a long answer. <laughs> no, that was great. And so ketamine provides um, basically this relaxation of the nervous system, as I understand it, and of the body that allows the person to access parts that, let's say, in an ordinary state of consciousness might be repressed before our awareness even catches a glimpse that right. that might be a thing in our psyche. Totally. Um, so 
so okay so people get to this deeper truth in themselves and you 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 then as i understand that you you guide them through it as as you know in a, in a conventional therapy session let's say it's just that they're in this altered state of consciousness um and what are the effects that you see once people do access this truth and you know get it out there what yeah. what happens after that and so yeah i'm actually changing it's a little different than traditional psychotherapy because what I have access to, what we have access to is the content of the deepest psych mm. psyche, the subconscious and even unconscious parts of us. And also what we would consider the material of co the cosmos itself, mm. because there are things that will arise in us that are way bigger than ourselves or our own history or even our family's history. We get information, mystical information, cosmic information. You know, most psychedelic experiences go well beyond the small sense of self and it connects us to the universe, to plants and animals. We have a lot of data that people feel so much more interconnected with the world around them after mm -hmm. any psychic, most psychedelic experiences. And that sense of interconnection gives us a sense of greater belonging to the whole universe. Most of us feel isolated. And we do, even though we're connected over the phone to everyone in the whole galaxy, we actually feel a sense of isolation and we don't really feel a true sense of belonging. And so when you're doing a psychedelic experience, especially a safe, healthy one, you start feeling a sense of connection to all things around you. So we're not only doing personal work on ourselves and our old traumas and our wounds, we're actually starting to uh, have relationship with the greater picture. And that actually increases our health metrics. We have uh, our cells respond to that. Our immune system is increased. Our stress responses reduce. There's a lot of data that suggests that actually points to belonging as um, a variable in good health. Mm. And so unlike traditional psychotherapy, we're going in such bigger concentric circles that help us connect in real time. What I love about psychedelic therapy and ketamine therapy is what I use mostly, is that we're doing the healing work and the connecting work in real time. It's not just we're talking and then you go home for the week and you, you kind of reflect. Mm -hmm. It's while we're in session together, you're actually repairing the wounds yourself and you're also feeling a sense of connection to everything around you. It doesn't happen every time you're under ketamine, but this is more than likely to happen. And so I'm actually helping people uh, process that the runes and and the connection in real time and that makes a huge difference because I might w work with someone for nine months to a year and we barely touch on that but then in three times in ketamine they actually have the felt sense of loving themselves mm -hmm. and of connecting to God universe mystery the world the earth I mean that's pretty profound so I, I see changes in three sessions where I didn't for nine months in therapy it's incredible that is really, really incredible. Um, it does make me wonder, um, healing at such a fast uh, rate, does, uh, aside from screening people, you know, so that they're, you know, biologically, you know, ready maybe to take the ketamine or whatever other psychedelic that you use, um, do you screen people um, in other ways as well? Like what makes someone qualified or not qualified to undergo this sort of therapy? Yes, because I work in clinic, in a clinic, um, the director of the clinic screens every single patient for um, appropriateness medically mm -hmm. and psych psychologically or psych psychiatrically, really, is what we would say. Mm -hmm. um, most 
people take well to this medicine except for those who've had a heart attack or stroke within the last year. If they have hypertension, high blood pressure, it, this medicine is not um, generally medically appropriate. Um, there's some psychiatric conditions like schizophrenia um, that we are cautious of and acute suicidality. Although ketamine has been shown to reduce acute suicidality, it's better to use that in a, in a setting like um, a hospital where, they're, where the people are safe to, uh, so we wouldn't take someone who's acutely suicidal, uh, we would refer them to a psychiatric, you know, holding space or some hopefully healing space for that. But it is shown that ketamine in that space is very helpful. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a very pretty intricate screening system psychologically as well as medically. And when I do retreats with combat veterans out of country, every combat vet also goes through a screening process with the psych nurse. Uh, there are medications people are taking that are not appropriate to use um, with ketamine mm -hmm. and so or with other psychedelic medicines and that's pretty well documented so anyone looking to do psychedelics if you're using certain psychiatric medications you're going to want to get some screening because we don't mm -hmm. want to just willy-nilly putting medicines together mm -hmm. our brain our brains actually are very sensitive to the uh, to the combination of medicines and some can be very harmful so we do want to take this seriously uh, before we invite people in. But for the most part, I see when, when that part is screening of when that part of screening is done, then I can work with most people who have issues like chronic depression, mm -hmm. chronic PTSD, trauma, anxiety, things like that. Um, the, the people are welcome to come in and, and but I don't work on reducing symptoms. I work on increasing well-being and healing. Mm -hmm. Depression is a symptom of some, like even depression is a cluster of symptoms that arise in our body mind be, in response to a context in our life. Mm -hmm. So I want to address the context and the history and how our body brain mind is operating because of that. That's what I'm interested in. Yeah. It makes me wonder. Um, I have heard anecdotal stories of people who have tried various psychedelics. I can't, I can't name them by name, but I know they, they can have very different experiences. So uh, whereas some people have reported something very similar to what you were saying, mystical, um, a good mystical sense, you know, a sense of like unity with the collective and so forth. Um, I've also heard stories of people who said actually it was really scary. Um, and I I I know that in, in some traditions um, for medicine ceremonies, you know, people have to get prepared you know you need to fast you need to do certain things beforehand is that also something that happens um as um as a prerequisite to your therapy do they do people need to do something before after like in that sense what happens there yeah yeah and the three most important pieces is prep the ceremony or the the therapy days mm -hmm. and then integration all of those are for me equal in importance the prep work I do with them and the prep work they do on their own is important because it's signaling to their body, to their brain, and also to their psyche. They're about to undergo some kind of transformational process. Mm. And it's important to tell our bodies this. It's actually, we have data. If you do meditation before a surgery and you let your body know of what's about to happen to it, literally talking to the part of your body that has surgery, or having communication with your body in general, it has a, great, a greater um, a chance of quicker recovery. 
your body will will be prepared. It's you, those of you listening, you might think I, just talking to my body can have an impact, but yeah, actually, it, it does because your body's not separate. It's not a thing that you live separately from. Your cells are responding to the way you think. Those of us with chronic negative thinking have chronic stress responses, and chronic stress responses lead to higher disease, more easy, you know, greater fatality, more morbidity. So we want to tell the body, hey, you're going to go through something, whether it's mm -hmm. ketamine, psilocybin, ayahuasca, DMT, there's something about to happen. I'm okay. It's not a threat. This is actually transformational. Mm -hmm. And what is a bad trip? I, I did a podcast with psychedelics today on a bad trip. And I think it's people who are not prepared to see certain things in their psyche or the cosmos, mm -hmm. and it scares them. And that makes sense because sometimes we see things that are really frightening mm -hmm. or we see our own history in a new way, and it's very difficult to see it. So preparation helps us um, get ready to surrender to be curious and open and to trust that what is coming up is the right thing mm -hmm. and if you have a great guide there'll be someone who can help you navigate difficult experiences a bad trip for me is a trip that's not supported and when uh, you can have a challenging trip but if it's supported it's transformational mm -hmm. i think a bad trip is when we're isolated and we're scared and we don't have anyone to help us through the experience or to help us understand or interpret the experience. Um, so yeah, in the ketamine world, we do want to encourage uh, good <clears throat> hygiene, internal hygiene too. So reducing alcohol or drug use, um, cleaning the body, eating health, healthy, fasting a little bit before. But ketamine is a synthetic drug and people don't think of it as a ceremonial one, although I use it that, I mean, I use it that way. It is ceremonial when you're going toward growth and healing. Mm. Um, so yes, I believe it should be taken as a sacred kind of medicine, even if it's synthetic. Mm -hmm. Integration then is this is also is just as important mm -hmm. because you can have this extremely life transforming experience. And if you don't know what to do with that, if you don't know how to put it into your life, it, it disappears. It, it's not that easy to sustain changes if you're not doing behaviors after the experience. Mm -hmm. To put it into your daily life and make the lessons practical. So integration, I can, we could spend a whole hour on integration. In in my personal view, this this feels like a risk um, in either with recreational psychedelics or in any context because yes, you do have that wonderful experience. Hopefully, a wonderful experience, not a bad trip. You know, you you do experience that that growth, especially um, if people are lucky to be in a setting with a good, good guide like yourself. Um, but then what? Like, because I, I also hear these stories of people, for example, for in ayahuasca ceremonies who just go and do tens of them. And it does make me wonder what is the point of that? Um, isn't the point integrating it into your own life, not just chasing that experience in and of itself yeah i think a lot of people really want to feel better as soon as they can and many people aren't willing to do the work that it takes to sustain the changes and that's that's just a, a fact of the difficulty of doing these practices in real life so if i tell somebody hey you're going to come to me but the real work is for the next two years of your life integrating what you just learned a lot of people, I they go, oh, God, that's so long. 
oh, why can't I just feel better now? I'm like, there's not, there's no magic pill for being human. Mm. That's the, the Buddha taught practices that are long-term. Um, all mystical teachings are long-term practices. You may have a moment of awakening, but, and very few people take a moment of awakening and they're changed forever. Mm. You may be, things like car accidents, divorces, deaths in the family, deaths to people close to you, near-death experience yourself wakes us up and be like, holy shit, mm. I need to like have a complete shift in the way I am because life is so precious. Mm. And that might be something that changes us, but then our, it's so hard to rewire the brain to do different behaviors. You have to have sustained practices. And so when I'm working with people, I'm like, this is going to change you, but, but it's change your worldview. But if you don't have practices at the end of this and you're not actually creating like long-term changes in yourself, your worldview, the way you think, how you speak, how you mm -hmm. act, it's not going to be sustained. And for the most, for most part, that's actually true. And those people who decide I'm going to commit to what I've just learned and they change their behaviors little bits at a time, but consistently, that's the folks who I see have long-term sustained changes in the way they are so integration is the actual work mm. not the psychedelic experience it's the integration where we're making long-term changes happen and when you say uh practices uh, are you referring to practices such as meditation breath work journaling that kind of thing to help you integrate or is it something else well, that that as well as consistent therapy and support becoming uh involved in communities where you know, you might you some people might have recreational drug use and love going out dancing, but they end up just doing it too hard and being mm -hmm. hungover, and then it affects their parenting, their relationships. I'm not judging. I'm just telling you some of the things I witnessed. And after these ceremonies, they might go, maybe there's a different way of being. Maybe I dance in an ecstatic dance community where the drugs aren't the focus. And the next day, instead of being depleted, I'm actually replenished. I feel a lot of energy. So the community changes from, let's just say the recreational drug use community of parties, which is cool. I, I love that too. I'm, I'm really not judging, but mm -hmm. it, it has an impact versus a community that might be uh, in more intentional with their drug use, or maybe they don't even use drugs and they're just gathering for the sake of sacred community. And so what I ask people to do is choose behaviors that are regener regenerative rather mm -hmm. than depleting. They're replenishing rather than, you know, tiring. And so when they leave psychedelic therapy, more people than not start making different decisions, even to the foods they eat. Mm -hmm. I have, I work with some cops who are using ketamine therapy and they're actually recognizing the importance of stress reducing behaviors rather than like adrenaline increasing. So they're taking out coffee because they're like, my job's already stressful. I don't want to hurt my heart any more than my just being a police officer does. Mm -hmm. So they're adding yoga, meditation, heart math, meditation or heart math strategies, uh, reducing their calorie, uh, reducing their caffeine. And these are actually really healthy strategies for keeping up the growth that they found in the psychedelic experience. So there's a variety of integrative practices we could talk about, but it's really based on the person's goals and how they want to change. Yeah. But most people do make changes that are sustained if they commit to those changes. And um, in terms of 
accessing uh, one's deepest truths or having that moment that prompts you to make good, you know, productive, productive in the sense of personal development changes in your life. Um, if someone, let's say it's not able or not willing to undergo psychedelic assisted therapy, like some of the examples you just uh, gave, like the um, heart mat meditations and so forth, like they, they seem like good ways to go about it, but is is there something else in particular that you would recommend or perhaps other forms of therapy that might be appropriate? Um, yeah. Yeah. And I don't think everyone should be doing psychedelic medicine. I don't think it's for everyone. And I don't believe it's the magic cure for anything. I think it's the context. Psychedelic therapy is one of the contexts that give us really quick access to our deeper truths and to the relationship mm -hmm. to, to the, to the cosmos. Um, but I'm a traditionalist, meaning I, I believe meditation in itself is a very uh, long-term, healthy, skillful way of being with ourselves and with the world. And those people who just simply, simply, it's very difficult, actually, good meditation practice. But those who consistently practice have similar shifts. It just takes a lot longer than like when we do the deep dive exploration through psychedelic therapy. Um, but I just want our listeners to know there's a variety of things. If you start an African drumming lessons and then you start joining African drumming groups like from Ghana or something, or, you know, that's a very specific way of drumming. You can get into trance. You can get the discipline you need. You can have a teacher that holds you accountable. You have a community in which you can talk about things that arise because it's drumming is therapeutic. Mm -hmm. If you have a dancing group, that becomes sacred to you. And you have a teacher you trust, you bring things to. And you have a community you bring things to that you're supported when your dog dies and you are not alone and you're held by other people. Um, AA, I, I'm a harm reduction person, but for some people, AA is a spiritual community. I don't think that's for everybody, but that's an example of something that's therapeutic where you can speak your truth. So psychedelics is one way. Psychedelic therapy is a really good way. But there are what, what we really need is a practice that you repeat. You need a community in which to do the practice. You need a teacher in whom will keep you accountable and speak truthfully to you. Mm -hmm. And um, and then you need to have intentions yourself for your own growth. Those are the four things that we've found through research. Uh, a practice is uh, attention, repetition intention what your heart wants out of it mm -hmm. uh, having a community doing it and having a teacher um and repeating it over and over again these are the ways that a, any practice can actually be therapeutic for you that's awesome um mm -hmm. mike i'm wondering how you connect the idea of personal truth to spirituality in general uh i think our personal truth is our spiritual truth. I don't distinct between spirituality and psychology. I don't know the difference anymore. Mm -hmm. I think we all are unique and we all have something. I think we all have something profoundly unique to us that is different from every other human being. I think we each have a gift that wants to be manifested. I think we each have ideas that want to be shared. Um, and most of us just haven't been supported or encouraged to discover that which mm -hmm. is within ourselves and my personal point of view is that god or the mystery gives us this particular uniqueness yet we're all an expression of the same thing 
what we call source, mystery. The source is formless. It has no boundaries. It's infinite. And it doesn't have shape. But it takes shape through us. So I'm a representation of the source. Each one of you listening is a representation of the source that's very unique. We all, but that uniqueness, if you find it and speak it and live it, comes from the source. And so we're, that's how we all stay connected. When we're living our highest potential, when we're living what we're, who we're meant to be, that is an expression of the source living through us. All the, all the other stuff is our human stuff we have to work through. And in depth psychology and in deep mystical traditions, we actually have to work through our humanity. Um, that is the task. That's when we become our own hero of our mm. own story. It's not avoiding the sin. It's not avoiding the darkness. It's actually working through the sin or the darkness to become radiant. That's where we find that spark of life is in the worst, worst places in our psyche. That's not different from, that's the universe giving us a chance to clean ourselves, to polish ourselves. So for me, even though it's tough being human, for me and many people, it's the actual opportunity to do the work, to find who we really are underneath all the wounding. And that connects us to the source of everything. In light of that, um, of this journey as a human to go through these dark corners of our psyche and, you know, emerge ever more radiant from that. How do you hope that in 50 years from now, we're going to think of and approach mental health? I think in 50 years, if we're not uh, having equal access to for everybody, and I'm talking people in prison, homeless, you know, the health disparities between white folk and all people of color is so, so dangerous and detrimental to everybody. All of our health matters equally. And that means we need to find ways of getting everybody equal access to, to these practices in equal ways. And so if in 50 years, if we're not doing that, we go toward, we go, we go toward degeneration of our, of humanity, because that's, because racism, homophobia, misogyny, sexism this is this is toxic for everybody equally it's it's worse for the people who are being oppressed but it's equally toxic for everybody so in 50 years my hope is that we are all getting equal access to health practices and all of our mentality all of our well-being is being considered equally and all the policies we create across schools in our laws everybody should be taken care of because that's where all of our health is dependent on is everybody else's health is our health. There's really no distinction. We know through biofield science that my health radiates somehow to you and my dis-ease radiates through this field between us to you. My negative thinking literally ripples out in the field around me and impacts you. My positive thinking does too. And so if we're concentrated on everybody's well-being equally, and we can all radiate better health together. And Mike, if for if the people listening and walk away from this conversation with just one thing, what would you like that one thing to be? That your health, your well-being matters. We have that saying, put on your oxygen mask first before you apply it to other people. And we, we so many of us actually just keep applying it to other people. 
it's not narcissistic or selfish to take care of your body, your mind, and your spirit. It's necessary for your own life and for the well-being of your community, your family, your friends. Take care of yourself. Take the time to see where your wounds are. Take the time to heal those wounds and listen to your own truth and move toward it and then live it because the well-being of our entire world depends on you being healthy and vibrant and authentic. I love it. And I, I love the reminder that as altruistic as we might want to be, we are also allowed to be included yes. <laughs> in that altruism because we're also part of everything. Um, and Mike, um, is there anything that we haven't covered today that you feel is important to share? And an infinite amount of things we haven't mm. covered. <laughs> There's a never ending material of, of growth and healing. Um, I don't know. There's, I, I love the topics we went. I appreciate those questions and a chance to like share what I'm doing. And um, I just want, I just, again, want people to take care of themselves. It's, it's, this is a blessing to be in a body, even if it's hurting, even when we have disease and we're, many of us are traumatized and it's very difficult to live in a trauma body, then take care of it. Love on it like you would a child who's innocent. Don't forget we're innocent underneath all the things we've done and happened to us. There's an innocence we've lost and we want to reclaim that. Dance, play, smile, laugh, joke, tease, you know, but more importantly, love, love this precious body and soul that we have, because who knows if this is it, then, then this is our one chance to love on this thing. And that will make it easier to love on other people, like genuinely. That's it. I love it. And Mike, there are so many other topics that uh, I would have loved to go into with you. And I'm sure listeners would have loved to listen to. And with that being said, um, I would like to point people to where they can find you online and find the many, many other um, topics that you share on, or if they want to go deeper on anything we talked about today. So where can listeners find you? Yeah, the easiest place is michaelsapiro.com. I have um, podcasts, a ton of them. I have teachings. I have free meditations. I have many of my articles I've written. Uh, I'm not much on social media, I, but my Instagram, Dr. Mike Boise, Dr. Hyphen Mike hyphen Boise. Uh, my agent says I need to build up my uh, following because I never cared, but she's like, we got to get that built up. So if you're listening, go like my Instagram page, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you for, for being here today, for sharing your knowledge and your wisdom. I know how incredibly busy you are, and I am so, so appreciative of you sharing this time with us today. Oh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be with you, and thanks for allowing me to share. Take good care.